And that's exactly what we want to talk about this morning. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time that you apologized to someone? And I, I don't mean the kind of apology you make when you bump into somebody at the store or you say sorry when you're trying to walk past people at the movie theater. That's not what we're talking about. I'm also not talking about the kind of I'm sorry you say that's followed by, but there's really nothing I can do about it. Do you remember the last time that you knew you had done something significantly wrong? You sought out the person that you had offended, and you gave them a thorough apology. If you remember that, was it difficult? I know it is for me. Maybe you can't even remember the last time you did that. And spouses, while the temptation at several points through this morning's sermon may arise, please do not look at the person next to you significantly with raised eyebrows and a nod. This is a good word for each of us individually and not for anybody else, if that makes sense. If you can't remember the last time you've done this, it has been too long. Or actually, let me ask you this instead. When was the last time that someone apologized to you? Do you remember that? When was the last time someone gave you a thorough apology? Do you remember how it felt? Because I do. Do you remember the impact that it had on your relationship with that person. If it's at all similar to my experience, it's an apology that worked to repair damage in your relationship and to bring you closer to the other person in fellowship. So this morning I want us to take a look at Psalm 32 and consider what it has to say to us about the goodness of confession and the healing impact that it can have on our lives. So please go with me to Psalm 32 in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can open up the Black Pew Bible that's in the chair in front of you. Psalm 32 is found on page 462. And as we read, I think it'll become clear that the Psalm's main focus is not the relationships that you have with other people, the healing or restoration with them. The main point of our psalm this morning is the relationship that you have with the Lord, its restoration, its healing, after the offense of our sin. So that will be the focus of our psalm this morning. Please read with me. A masculine of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For 
day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy all you upright in heart. This is God's word for us this morning. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord God, we acknowledge that our minds are slow to understand what you are trying to say to us, and our hearts are slow to put your words into action. Please have mercy on us and grant us your grace now, both to hear and to receive your truth. Open the minds and hearts of everyone here so that your word might work powerfully among us this morning. Grant that your Holy Spirit empower us to receive with joy your instruction on confession and to live it out in our daily lives. We pray that by it you would restore relationships, grant spiritual health, and cause each one of us to grow together into maturity in the body of Christ. We pray it not only for our own sake, but also for the sake of your holy church and for the glory and the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We ask it of you through his powerful name. Amen. So what does the word blessed mean to you? When you hear someone say, we've been so blessed, what do they mean? I suspect they mean different things, depending on who you're listening to. This is a word that shows up often enough in Christian conversation, but different people use it differently. Maybe they mean that they're doing well financially, that they have everything they need, or maybe they're saying that they have more than they need. Maybe that's what they think being blessed is. Or maybe you might hear a friend or relative say, 
around the Thanksgiving table, speaking of good health or good friendships, we're just so blessed. And that would be true. And it's not limited to Christians only. I've heard lots of non-religious people use the word blessed. But it's important to note that each kind of person, whoever they are, is probably using this word very differently. Let's take a look at this psalm, verses 1 and 2, to see what blessed means for our psalmist, David. He said, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. These first two verses offer us a summary of the entire psalm. And the other nine verses of the psalm are here to give us a full and rich picture of this idea of the blessed individual and the blessed life. In the psalms, the word blessed is often used to describe that kind of life that the Lord approves of. A way of living that pleases God. The entire Psalter, Psalm 1, verse 1, begins with the same word. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Throughout the Psalms and other wisdom literature, That's what it means to be blessed. It means that God looks on that kind of life with his blessing. And Jesus did the very same thing. He wanted to instruct us what the blessed life was. His most famous explanation of how Christians should live, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, begins by announcing, blessed are the poor in spirit. Not the financially secure, the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek. The meek? The meek. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. And finally, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Persecuted? Yes. Blessed are the persecuted. This is the kind of life that God is pleased with, and he wants you to know it. And it's not what we would have thought. It's not financial stability. It's wonderful to be financially stable. But that's not a blessed life. It's wonderful to have good health, good friendships. The kind of life that God is pleased with is different. So when Psalm 32 begins with this word, blessed, it's saying to us, listen up. I have something to say. God wants to tell you the way to live. 
true life. Have you ever wanted to know what God wants from you? Well, pay attention, because here it is. So let's pay attention together. And there are three main ideas that this psalm wants us to pay attention to, three exhortations that it makes to those who are willing to listen. The first point of the psalm and of this morning's sermon is an exhortation to accept God's discipline. This psalm wants all of us to accept God's discipline. Do you like discipline? Does anybody? Our scripture reading this morning from Hebrews 12 puts it pretty plainly. In verse 11, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. And this is not by mistake. When I discipline my children, I intentionally try to keep it from being pleasant. Why? Discipline is supposed to be painful. That's what teaches you not to do it again. And we see the same idea here in this passage in verses 3 to 4. This is David's description of God's discipline on himself. David writes, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. That does not sound pleasant. David feels like he's wasting away, like he has no strength. Have you ever felt this way? Yet, in his situation, David recognizes something, that this is the hand of the Lord upon him, disciplining him for his sin. And I want to stop and make a clarification in case anybody might get the wrong idea. This psalm is not trying to tell us that suffering that we go through in our lives is always God's judgment for sin. I don't want you to come away this morning thinking that at any time you suffer, if you feel like God's hand is heavy upon you, it must be because there's some sin that you need to confess. If you feel depression, it's not necessarily judgment. Scripture is very clear about this. Sometimes we suffer because we live in a broken and sinful world that has yet to be fully redeemed. Other times, Scripture is clear for other purposes we suffer. John 9 is very clear that the man who was born blind was born so, so that God's power in his life might be made manifest for him and for all of those who are looking. That God might manifest his great power and bring glory to himself. Nevertheless, there are other times when the cause of our suffering is our sin. It is sometimes the case that when things just keep going wrong, when you can't get a break, when it seems like the Lord is opposing all of your plans, it's because he is. And it's good. I'll give you an example. Usually, I am a great 
sleeper. Katie's laughing. It's, it's a laugh of affirmation. Usually it takes me about three minutes to fall asleep. But there have been times when I've had unconfessed sin in my life, and the Lord decides Ryan is not going to sleep tonight. Not going to get any sleep. He's just going to lie there, wide awake, counting the minutes, and it's just going to be awful. He's done this to me several times. I don't know why the Lord has picked this kind of discipline for me, but he has. And at first, I did not understand it. After a while now, I recognize that when it happens, it is always because there's something I've done, something in my heart, something in my life that I haven't confessed, either to the Lord or someone else. And it is not fun. I don't always know what it is that I've done. Sometimes I do. But whenever he does it, I'm grateful. And I thank him for it. Because in his discipline, God is a good father to each of us. And that's exactly what Hebrews 12 is talking about. Let's go back to Hebrews 12, verse 6. It reads, The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Every son, every daughter that he receives, he chastises. I want you to know today that a nagging conscience is a huge blessing from the Lord. It is a gracious gift that he gives to all of his children, all of them. And it's a sign that you're still being disciplined. It's a sign that your heart is not yet so fully hardened and your conscience so numb that you can't hear his voice of rebuke. That's a good thing. It's a good thing. But, on the other hand, verse 8 of Hebrews 12 warns us, if you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. That's scary. If you find that the Lord isn't convicting you for your sin in your heart, that is a very dangerous situation. You don't want to be in that situation. If that's you, if you're not convicted of your sin in your heart, be afraid. If you're not receiving the Lord's discipline, Hebrews 12 tells you that it's an indication that you are more of a slave than you are a son. Rather, God's discipline, his heavy hand pressing on us, and the groaning and the suffering that it produces, they are meant for your good. That we may turn from our sin and share in his holiness. So I urge you, pay attention to the Lord's discipline. Look for it. Watch for it. And when you find it, this psalm wants to exhort us, accept it. But acceptance isn't all that David had to do in this psalm. 
David went beyond mere acceptance of God's discipline to an explicit and active confession of his sin to the Lord. And that's our second point this morning. The second thing this psalm wants to exhort you to do is to confess your sin to the Lord. Each of us, confess your sin to the Lord. David's suffering came, as verse 3 says, when he kept silent. When he hid his sin. When he pretended like it wasn't there and covered covered it up. And each of us, every single person in this room has done this. We have this tendency in our hearts to hide, to cover up what we've done wrong. We don't want anybody to know about it. And this desire goes all the way back. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3, to the first sin. Adam and Eve, after their sin in the garden, when they realized what they had done, when they realized that they were had sinned and opposed the Lord, had one immediate response. Hide. Cover up. When we cover our iniquity, it's an attempt to look good. We know we don't look good, and so we cover up. We hide. We don't let others know what we've done, and it's the natural response of any sinful person. Does this resonate with you? Do you remember times that you've sneaked and you've hidden? When you've kept the ugly stuff back and put the good face forward? David hid his sin for a while. But he came to the realization that confession is far better. In verse 5, he says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David opened up. He stopped hiding. He didn't cover his sin, but actively and openly confessed it. And what was the result? God forgave. Do you know that's what God likes to do? Do you believe that God likes to do it? The best possible result that he could want is what happened. Why would you not confess? It's so good. It's terrible, but it's so good. Imagine for a moment hiding from your doctor the symptoms of a deadly disease. Imagine you've been having terrible headaches, you're constantly tired, you've had persistent chest pains, and you started coughing up blood last week. You're you're not in good shape. And then you go into your doctor for your annual checkup. He asks you how you've been feeling. And you reply, never felt better. Things are going great. I feel like I'm in the best shape of my life. 
why would you do that? I don't know if anybody has ever done that. Maybe. Maybe there's someone out there who's done that. It would be, it would be ludicrous. And yet that's exactly what we do. This is what it's like when we don't confess our sins to God. You see how foolish it is? How utterly foolish and useless it is to try to hide? In fact, it's even worse. Because you might actually fool your doctor. You're actually doing something. I don't know why you're doing it, but you, you might actually succeed in what you're trying to do. But you are not fooling God when you don't confess your sin. On the other hand, it would be, be kind of like trying to lie to a doctor who's got the chest x-ray in his hand. And really, best shape of your life? <laughs> That's how stupid we are. That's how stupid I am. God knows you're not well. You're not fooling him. In light of David's realization in verse 5 that hiding his sin was foolish and useless, he spends the entire second half of this psalm making a significant re-understanding of sin and a redefinition. There's a redefinition he makes in verse 6 that I'd like us to read together. Verse 6 reads, Therefore, because of what we just said, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. David says, therefore, because of this, because I confessed my sin to God and his his result, his response was that he forgave me when I didn't cover my iniquity, because that happened, let everyone who is godly do the same thing. Let everyone who is godly offer the same kind of prayer prayer of confession to God while he may be found. Sometimes we think the word godly means oh, she is such a good person. Or he seems to have everything together. She doesn't ever seem to struggle with sin. Is that what you think godly means? Because this psalm wants to redefine godly for you. God wants us to resist the idea that the primary evidence of godliness in our lives is human perfection. Human sinlessness. Growth in holiness absolutely should be a goal of every Christian, everyone in this room. But here in this psalm, God wants to define godliness differently. God does not require your perfection. It's an important thing to hear. God does not require your perfection. Instead, he's working to bring it about. Here in this psalm, godliness is your willingness to confess sin. Are you godly? Then offer this prayer to God while he may be found. And I want to tell you this morning that the message of Christianity is not that God requires you to be perfect. God is the one who is perfect. 
And the message of the gospel is that we're not. We are broken and sinful. God was perfect, and we just threw down his kingship over our lives. We've all rebelled against God, and not one of us is perfect. And he's got to judge that. That's a rebellion that he has to say no to. good news of the gospel is that our sin, our rebellion, was judged. He did say no to it. Because he knew that we couldn't bear the penalty for our sin, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be born as a man, to live the perfect life, and to die as the punishment for the sin that we couldn't carry. You don't need to be perfect. Christ was. Christ is. And he is our perfection. So please do not pretend that you're perfect, especially not in a church. The church should not be, no one should be able to pretend in a church that anyone's perfect. That's exact, that's the focus of what we preach every week. God doesn't want you to pretend to be perfect. And it's not what we want from you either. None of us are perfect, and the church should know that better than most people. Instead, what God demands is that you acknowledge your sin, like David. That you turn from it and repent from it. And you turn back to him by faith in Christ. And when we do that, just like in David's case, God is faithful to forgive. He wants to forgive. He's eager to forgive. So please don't let your shame or your guilt keep you from confession. Confession of sin is not shame and it's not failure. Sin, that's shame, that's failure. Confession is the first step of return back to God in the direction of honor and victory. And this is why David spends the entire second half of the psalm exhorting us to eager, zealous confession. But I want to take a look at verse 6 again, at that last phrase in verse 6. What did David mean when he said, Therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. What does that mean? there a time when God can't be found? Well, sadly, yes. There is. And that brings us to our third and last point this morning. First, David exhorted us to accept God's discipline, to recognize it for what it is, and welcome it. And then he exhorted us to confess our sin to God, not to hide it or pretend that we're better than we are. And finally, he exhorts us to run to God early. The Lord wants us to run to God early. Well, what do you mean by early? Well, simply put, I mean right now. If you tune out from the rest of the sermon, 
because you feel so convicted by God to go to him in prayer and to tell him the ways that you have unconfessed sin in your life? If you don't hear another word I say this morning because that's what you're doing, do it. Go. That, that's what early means. It means don't wait. Don't wait till later. You may not have a later. Run to God early also means that when you sin, you should be developing the habit of turning to God in confession and repentance as soon as you realize what you've done. If you have an attitude that says, oh, I'll get around to repenting later when I'm not so busy, kind of in the middle of an email right now, that's like someone saying, yeah, I know that I'm in a house that's on fire. I know that my house is burning down around me right now, and I am going to head out of this house very soon. But I'm not done with breakfast, so I'm just going to wait a little bit. It's only on the second floor. I've got some time. No. Run. Run out of the burning house. David describes how it's like a rush of great water just coming at you. It just wants to carry you away. You're about to be swept away in a flood. And he says, you will find your safety in confession, in repentance, in staying near the Lord. Verse 6 tells us, Surely, surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. He continues in verse 7, You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. This is what David was talking about in verse 1. This is what it means to live a life blessed by God. I want to ask you this morning, do you see your sin this way? When you think about your sin, is it a rush of great waters that's just waiting to come at you and carry you away with it? Do you need a hiding place from your sin? Do you feel that need? Or when you think about your sin, is it more like one of those mosquitoes that gets in the house and it's really annoying, like whenever it goes right by your ear? But otherwise, you know, like if it goes to another room, it's okay. To those who listen to God, who are eager to confess sin, he speaks, verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. But if your attitude toward your sin is more like an annoyance and less like a flood coming at you. David has words for you in verse 9. Take a look at verse 9. He says there, Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. If an untrained horse standing near his master get surprised or startled by something, what does it do? Natural reaction? Bolt. Just, just start running. And that's exactly 
what natural man's reaction is. That's exactly what Adam's reaction was. Let's find some trees and get in them. Let's hide. Let's cover ourselves. God's appeal to you is do not do that. Don't be like a mere beast. Don't have the mind of an animal with no understanding. Because naturally, you just want to leave your master. You want to leave the safety and protection that he offers you. And we just want to bolt. God says, don't be that way. And so the question for us this morning is, do you have a teachable spirit? The God who made us wants to form in us that understanding that we don't have in our sinful nature. Are you willing to be trained? Or does he need to pull you back? Does he need to put that bit in your mouth, that bridle on your head, and just, does he need to pull you, fight you, to stay near? If he does pull you back, if he grabs at you and brings you near, Praise the Lord. What a wonderful blessing from the Lord that he's keeping you near him. That's a gift. But the life he desires from each of us is not one where we're trying to go that way and he's just pulling us. He'll do it because he loves us. The life he desires from you is to stay near. Go to him for protection. It's the best thing for you, and it's the thing that most honors him because in our staying near, we recognize he's the only one that can help me. So run to God in confession early, right away. Seek your shelter in him. Hide from your sin in God. Do not hide from God in your sin. As verse 6 says, Offer your prayer to him when he may be found. Our scripture passage from Hebrews 12 also has something to say about the idea of seeking the Lord while he may be found. It's there too. Did you catch it? Hebrews 12, in verses 16 to 17, it offers us a warning about Esau and about the dismissive attitude he had toward the things of God. Hebrews 12, 16 exhorts us not to be unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit a blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Esau spurned God's blessing and God's relationship Have you ever done this? Have you ever sinned with the idea, perhaps like Esau, that later on you'll repent? You may find, like Esau, that genuine repentance is actually harder than you might think. Do not assume that when you willingly sin against the Lord, that you'll always be able to repent. Esau, having spurned God and his relationship with God, found no opportunity for genuine repentance. Not because God was faithless, 
because Esau was faithless. Esau had rejected God, was distant from God, and willingly had given himself over to faithlessness. Run to God early. Be eager in your confession. Be quick in your repentance and your turning from sin. There's one final comment I'd like to make about confession. Psalm 32 is about confessing your sin to the Lord. And that is by far the most important thing you can do with your sin. But I also want to encourage you, God has given us one another as his body, the church, so that we might grow up in holiness together, as we heard preached last week, into the image of Christ. One of the means of growth he's given me and many of us has been confession to others, both in the corporate prayers of confession that we've had, as well as to other mature Christians. So I encourage you, take advantage of God's gracious gift of the church as part of your confession. Do not hide your sin. Psalm 32 wants to exhort each of us accept discipline. Recognize it, first of all, and accept it. Welcome it. Confess it. Confess your sin to God and run to him early. We read in verses 10 and 11, many are the sorrows of the wicked. That is not the good life that God wants for us. That's not what he's pleased with. Continuing on in verse 10, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy all you upright in heart. That is how to live a blessed life, a life that's pleasing and acceptable to God. And turning to him in confession and repentance from our sin through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the regular confession of your sins to God, David experienced how much it can change a life to openly confess, and I hope that we all come to see confession as God's gracious gift of freedom and hope to each of us. Let's pray.